Thank you for joining me on Season 1, Episode 8 of Darkest Nightmare. The title of today's show is National Park Horror Volume 1 In Yosemite, No One Can Hear You Scream As always, I'm your host, Grandpappy. A mother, her teenage daughter, and a foreign exchange student that the family was hosting wanted a little time in nature in the breathtaking wonder of Yosemite. They were going to have a ladies-only vacation and take in the sights and sounds that this renowned national park is known for. No doubt they were aware of the dangers of the wildlife in the area. Bears, mountain lions, coyotes and the like. But, as is so often the case, what they really had to fear was a wolf in sheep's clothing. And that person would turn out to be their darkest nightmare. On February 12, 1999, Carol Sund, age 42, her daughter Julie, 15, and Sylvina Peloso, age 16, left Eureka, California to go on vacation in the area near Yosemite National Park. After first flying to San Francisco, where Carol rented a red 1999 Pontiac Grand Prix, they stopped in Stockton, California where Julie took part in a cheerleading contest at the University of the Pacific. On February 14th, they made their way to Cedar Lodge in El Portal, which is located on Yosemite's western slope. They planned to stay two or three days in the lodge while visiting Yosemite. Carol and her husband Jens, age 43, owned a real estate brokerage in the Stockton area. The Sun family had been hosting Sylvina who was a foreign exchange student from Argentina and was a friend of Julie's. She was spending three months with the family. Jens had been unable to accompany the ladies to Yosemite because he needed to prepare for an upcoming business trip in Arizona. But he'd made plans to meet the three at the San Francisco airport after their stay in Cedar Lodge where they would travel on with him to Arizona. The ladies had plans to tour the Grand Canyon while Jens attended to his business in Arizona. But this was still ahead of them, and right now, they just wanted to have fun on their girls-only adventure. On February 15th, Carol, Julie, and Sylvina hiked into Yosemite National Park on one of the many trails. That evening, the group grabbed some videos from the lodge's service desk to watch in their room. It was the last time the women were ever seen alive. On the following morning, February 16th, the housekeeping staff of the lodge claimed that when they cleaned the room, there was no evidence of foul play. Nothing at all that aroused their suspicion. 
It seemed a checkout had been made in advance and the room keys were left on the writing desk in the women's room. Meanwhile, Jens was surprised and worried that he did not find his wife, daughter, and Sylvina at the airport as had been planned. He assumed that they had probably ended their trip in Yosemite early and flown on ahead to Arizona. He tried to contact the women but was unable to do so. When he was still unable to reach them the next morning, he called the police. The company where Carol had rented the Red Pontiac confirmed that she had never returned the car. Then Carol's wallet turned up in Modesto, which included money and credit cards. Something was clearly very, very wrong. FBI agent Nick Rossi said on February 26th, quote, At this point, we have not yet uncovered evidence to allow us to determine conclusively whether this was a tragic accident or a criminal act. End quote. Two weeks later, FBI agent James Maddock, now placed in charge of the investigation, told the press, quote, We feel almost certain that the women were victims of a violent crime. End quote. Local police and Yosemite Park Rangers began to search the area where the missing three were last seen. The initial suspicion was that they may have wandered off the main hiking pass and got lost in the park. For four weeks, police, family, and volunteers searched the area on foot and near Yosemite Park by helicopter, foot, and skis looking for the missing three women as well as the Red Pontiac Grand Prix. Because of the discovery of Sun's wallet in suburban Modesto, police and FBI searched the logical routes in and out of that spot, interviewing homeowners and business owners and others who may have seen the ladies. The Bureau relocated its headquarters from Yosemite to Modesto at this point, and on February 28th, 12 days after the women's disappearance, hinted that it was no longer treating the Sunday incident as a missing persons case, but as murder. More than a thousand leads, they confessed, produced nothing. Still, the Bureau intensified its search, recruiting the use of more high-tech equipment and air support. Unofficially, Jen Sund offered a $250,000 reward for information that would lead to the return of the missing women. After a couple of weeks, he upped the sum to $300,000, but to no avail. Carol's parents, Francis and Carol Carrington, appeared on the Good Morning America TV show to ask for the prayers of Americans and their help in locating their daughter and the missing children. The other son children believed that their mother and sister, Julie, would be returned but by the middle of March, their hopes faded. The Sun family's worst fears were confirmed when a hiker wandered onto the site of a burned-out red 1999 Pontiac hidden off of Highway 108 in the Stanislaus Forest region on March 18th. The California Highway Patrol verified the car's license plate as the Sun's rented vehicle and immediately notified the FBI. Agents arrived at the scene early on the 19th, and upon opening the trunk, investigators found 
two charred bodies. After several days, the bodies were identified through dental records as Carol Sund and Sylvina Peloso. Then, on March 25th, Julie Sund's body was discovered near Lake Pedro in a neighboring county. It was badly decomposed, and her throat had been cut. Over the next few weeks, a task force, including FBI agents and law enforcement officers from four surrounding counties, arrested several known sex offenders, drug users, and ex-convicts with a record of violence from within a 75-mile area between Modesto and Sonoma. The police reckoned that the killer of the three women was someone familiar with the county, given the location of the Pontiac. The car was hidden off a spur road where locals dumped old refrigerators, cars, and washing machines. By mid-April, those who had been arrested were ordered to testify in front of a grand jury in Fresno, California. Four men were considered the main murder suspects in the initial inquiries. By the end of June, the FBI had reviewed the testimonies and the evidence linked to the suspects in custody. At that time, the Bureau stated that while no one had yet been charged, it felt that those responsible for killing the three women at Yosemite were already behind bars. Those suspects were Michael McLarwick, age 42 of Modesto, part of a vagabond group of methamphetamine drug users and friends centered in the Modesto area. Larwick, who grew up near where the bodies of Carol Lund and Sylvina Peloso were found, was jailed March 16th after he allegedly shot a Modesto police officer. He had a long criminal record and had been questioned extensively by the FBI. He denied any role in the Yosemite slayings. Next was Eugene Rufus Dykes, age 32, also of Modesto, and Larwick's half-brother. He was arrested in March. Next was Billy Joe Strange, 39, an El Portal parolee who worked at the Cedar Lodge Lounge and Restaurant where the murdered women were last seen. He was arrested on March 5th when he allegedly reported to his parole officer with liquor on his breath. The FBI pushed for Strange's arrest, but he denied any part in the triple murders. And fourth was Daryl Gray Stevens, age 55, Strange's roommate. Convicted in 1978 for rape and robbery, he was jailed on March 14th for failing to register as a sex offender. Another person arrested and later released was Carrie Stainer, who worked at the Cedar Lodge as the handyman. He had no criminal record and his only encounter with the law was for marijuana use in 1997. And then there was another murder. Acting on a tip from a caller, who was worried about the whereabouts of his friend, Joey Ruth Armstrong, age 26, park rangers found her decapitated body on the morning of July 22, 1999. It was discovered beyond a campground 
adjacent to our living quarters in the Foresta community, a group of 30 cabins for use by park workers. Her body was next to a stream and her head was found in the water that she and her friends used as the source for their drinking water. At that time, she was working for the Yosemite Institute and had worked on education programs through a partnership with the National Park Service. She had probably been murdered on the evening of Wednesday, July 21st. She was seen then at the Institute offices and was planning to visit a friend in Sausalito, California that day, but she never made it. When she didn't appear as planned, her would-be host had phoned the park. Police found her car in front of her cabin, packed and ready for her trip. Chief James Maddock said he himself questioned whether the Bureau could have done anything to prevent Armstrong's murder. Quote, I've struggled with that issue for the last 24 hours and continue to do so. End quote. He did feel, however, that the FBI spared nothing to investigate the earlier killings, saying, I'm confident we've done everything that could be reasonably done. On Saturday, July 24th, FBI agents announced at a press conference that a man was in custody on strong suspicion of murder and that a significant announcement would be made shortly thereafter. The suspect, Carrie Stainer, age 37, had been one of the people questioned after the triple killings in February, but at that time, no evidence linked him directly to the crime and he'd been released. Because he was the handyman at the Cedar Lodge in El Portal, where the sons and Peloso had stayed before they were murdered, his questioning in February seems to have been more routine than anything. This time, however, Agents detained him and forced him to answer more questions. Investigators searched his truck and confiscated his backpack for examination. Upon his release, the FBI warned him not to leave the area. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, a witness claimed that Stainer was angry about authority seizing his backpack after he was questioned earlier that day. He was also angry about how his truck had been searched. Stainer's apartment was searched later in the day and authorities discovered evidence that linked him to Armstrong's murder. Special Agent Maddox said, during the last 24 hours, we have developed specific information linking Stainer to the Sund Peloso murders. On Friday, July 23rd, agents arrived to arrest Stainer, but he had disappeared from the area. They finally caught up with him at the Laguna del Sol nudist colony, a place which he frequented. The manager of the nudist colony had seen a story on television, recognized Stainer's photo as one of his guests, and notified the FBI. Agents descended on the colony and arrested Stainer. He was returned to El Portal, where he was put through a more lengthy interrogation. On the way to his police interview, he confessed to a detective in the car to murdering Joey Armstrong, describing the brutal killing, quote, as if he was reading a soup label. 
That was from John Bowles, another FBI agent on the case. Soon after, he confessed to murdering Carol and Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso. Stainer said to investigators, quote, I want you to get a hold of some producers in Los Angeles. I want a movie of the week made about my story, end quote. There had been a movie made about his brother, Steven Stainer, and he wanted the same attention and for the world to take notice of him. By the end of that evening, the FBI felt it had gathered enough evidence to arrest Kerry Stainer for murder. They rushed him to Fresno to officially lodge a complaint, then to Sacramento, where he was put before the courts. That same day, Stainer allowed himself to be interviewed by a reporter. During the session, an unexpected event occurred. In a voice that seemed relieved to be unburdened, from a dark secret, Stainer blurted, I'm guilty. I did murder Carol Sund, Julie Sund, Sylvina Peloso, and Joey Armstrong. None of the women were sexually abused in any way, which of course was an absolute lie. In the interview, Stainer said he had fantasized about killing women for the past 30 years and described in detail how he murdered all the women. He had strangled Peloso and Carol Sund in the bathroom of their rented cabin at the Cedar Lodge. He then took Julie Sund to a lake where he killed her early the next morning by slashing her throat. He abandoned the group's rental car with the bodies of Carol and Sylvina inside, returning two days later to burn the evidence and retrieve the wallet which he dumped in Modesto to confuse authorities. Stainer said he thought he had gotten away with the earlier crimes, but could not resist the urge to kill Joey Armstrong after he struck up a chance conversation with her. Concluding the interview, he addressed the victim's families, saying, I'm sorry their loved ones were where they were when they were. I wish I could have controlled myself and not done what I did. FBI sources claimed that he had already confessed his guilt during the Saturday evening interrogation. In the Bureau's mind, this time it had the right man. He had given the FBI details only the killer would know in such specificity that agents were able to recover evidence confirming his confession. Knives were used in two of the slayings, and the weapon suspected in Miss Armstrong's death was recovered. According to Special Agent Christopher Hopkins, both the FBI's evidence response team and the Mariposa County Sheriff's Office collected items of potential interest from room 509 at the Cedar Lodge Motel, the room in which Stainer sexually assaulted Julie Sund and Sylvina Peloso and murdered both Carol Sund and Sylvina. In his interview, Stainer claimed that hair from his body was left on the bedspread in their motel room, but he returned later and changed the bed. Upon examination by the FBI laboratory, 
Some items yielded trace evidence. Among other things, the FBI laboratory found hairs and vacuum sweepings taken from room 509 and possibly body fluid stains on a blanket and a latent palm print from the windowsill. Vacuum sweepings yielding hair evidence were taken from inside Joey Armstrong's house where Stainer claims to have bound her with duct tape before sexually assaulting and murdering her. The FBI laboratory also found possible body fluid stains on a bedsheet taken from her residence. They also seized clothing stained with blood from her body. Although most of the stains were likely to include Armstrong's blood, Stainer was observed to have a laceration on his hand during his interrogation and therefore may have been cut and bled during the attack. Latent fingerprints were also lifted from the interior of Joey Armstrong's truck, which Stainer admitted to touching during his encounter with her. So, let's look at who exactly was Carrie Stainer. A relatively quiet but friendly man, a fellow motel handyman recalled that Carrie Stainer's only passion seemed to be nude sunbathing and hiking. On days off, he would escape to Laguna del Sol, a nudist colony in Sacramento County. Despite this, he never appeared to behave lewdly or perversely in public, or at least nothing noticed by his colleagues at the motel. However, there were warning signs during his younger years. Stainer's father, Delbert, later admitted that he thinks his son Carrie may have suffered trauma at age 11 when his younger brother Stephen, then only seven years old, was abducted in 1972. He disappeared and his fate was unknown for eight long years. During that time, Stephen had been forced to endure sexual abuse by his kidnapper, whom he finally turned into the police. But, says Delbert, puberty-aged Carrie endured some emotional hardships because of that incident. After graduation from Merced High School, Stainer worked as a window installer at a glass company. Then, Cedar Lodge hired him as a handyman in 1997 and gave him the use of a small apartment on the top floor. Management said they found him to be a hard worker and honest. In his capacity, Stainer performed technical and housekeeping duties, everything from fixing electrical and mechanical breakdowns to delivering extra towels and bedding to guests. He usually ate lunch and dinner at the motel restaurant. Some who knew Carrie Stainer were shocked at his arrest. Sandy Cox, whose husband owned the window company where Stainer had worked previously, said, quote, We've known Carrie since he was a little boy. It just doesn't match up. Out of respect for his family and the victim's family, we don't want to say any more. End quote. Silvina Peloso's mother, Raquel, said, I just cannot understand how so many people 
didn't realize that maybe Stainer was the man, since I heard that he was interviewed some time ago. The FBI was reluctant to focus solely on Stainer because they and many others did not believe that Stainer acted by himself given the brazen killing of the three women in the Cedar Lodge Motel and the disposal of their bodies. Many local residents were convinced that no one person could have created so much horror. The logistics of it say it had to involve more than one person, said Letty Carolyn Berry, owner of the Yosemite Rosebud Lodge, which sits to the west of Cedar Lodge. Privately, some members of the Sun Peloso Task Force were saying the same things to the media. Those sources say it's difficult for some investigators to believe Stainer could have gotten the jump on all three of those women without any help, let alone dispose of their bodies. The death penalty trial of Carrie Stainer was moved from Mariposa County to Santa Clara County, California. In May 2002, Stainer pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity in the 1999 murder of Peloso and the Sons. In mid-July of 2002, the trial began in Judge Thomas C. Hastings' courtroom. On Monday, July 22nd of 2002, the court heard Stainer's taped confession, which he had given to FBI agents. In this, he calmly reviewed how he strangled 16-year-old Silvina Peloso in the motel bathtub and how he sexually assaulted Julie's son for hours before brutally cutting her throat. He had talked his way into their room under the guise of fixing a leak and then sexually assaulted both the young girls and brutally murdered Carol Lund and Silvina Peloso in the bathroom he then carried Julie to a vista point near Lake Don Pedro, pledging his love for her before cutting her throat as the sun rose. The issue was no longer who committed the murders, but whether Stainer was insane at the time and whether the confession to the FBI agents had been coerced. Stainer, clad in a red jail jumpsuit, bowed his head but showed no emotion as Judge Hastings sentenced him to death three times, once for each murder after returning to the courtroom. Stainer was already serving a life sentence for the murder of Joey Armstrong. The issue of whether his confession was coerced seemed to be resolved when on July 24th, the court heard the recorded demands that Stainer made to the FBI agents that he wanted to be satisfied before he would give them his confession. He demanded that his parents be given the reward money, that he be incarcerated at a prison near his parents' home, and that he be given a large cache of child pornography. What a guy. Previously, the defense had maintained that the FBI had coerced the confession. In the end, Stainer confessed without the promise of child pornography or reward money for his parents. Hastings rejected new defense claims 
that juror misconduct prevented a fair trial. The judge said there was overwhelming evidence against Stainer and that the devastating emotional toll justified execution. I've never seen anything that's so close to black and white and evil and good as Stainer and our children, said Francis Carrington, the father of Carol's son and grandfather of Julie. I'm so proud of the way Carol and Julie lived, and I'm so ashamed of Stainer. Stainer's father, Delbert Stainer, said his son was deprived of a fair trial by a kangaroo court and a judge who ignored defense arguments. All of it's been bad, Delbert Stainer said, of his family's life. I'm just horrified when I think of what happened in that room what my daughter felt when she realized she was in serious trouble, said Carol Carrington, as she asked the judge to sentence Stainer to death. How frightened the girls must have been when he cut their clothes off, she said. There were other near misses involving Stainer in addition to the murders of the four women in Yosemite. A woman named Lena learned in 1999 that she, her mother, and her sister had nearly been murdered by Carrie Stainer. Her mother had been dating him, and he had decided to kill them on Valentine's Day. His attempt was foiled when other people were at the house at the time he was planning to commit the crimes. Let's take a look at the Stainer family and the two faces of evil. The two brothers of the Stainer family are both famous. One, Stephen, experienced horror at the hands of a child molester, while the other, Carrie, became the despised serial killer in Yosemite. One brother was subjected to just unspeakable horror for years, but by all appearances, he was a happy-go-lucky jovial kid with a girlfriend. You have the other brother who's left at home, had no interest in girls, had no interest in people. He was just a creepy loner. The Stainer family was made up of two brothers, three sisters, and parents, Kay and Delbert. They lived in the farming town of Merced, California, known as the Gateway to Yosemite. Stephen Stainer helped another child escape from a pedophile after enduring years of abuse and not wanting to see the child experience the same fate he had. On December 4, 1972, at the age of seven, Stephen was approached after school by Edward Irvin Murphy, who claimed he was collecting money for a church. After Stephen said his mother probably be interested in donating, Murphy offered to take the boy home. It was then that Stephen's darkest nightmare began as Murphy brought him to Kenneth Parnell, a known pedophile. Parnell, along with Murphy, took Stephen to a cabin where he was brainwashed over time to believe his parents no longer loved or wanted him. Parnell worked at the Yosemite Lodge located about two hours away from the Stainer home. 
he befriended a co-worker named Irvin Murphy to assist him in the abduction. Parnell and Murphy were driving towards town when Stephen was lured into their vehicle and abducted. Kenneth Parnell stopped the car and went to a payphone. He came back and told Stephen, Your parents, I just spoke to them. They no longer want you. When Stephen didn't return from school that afternoon, his parents sounded the alarm. A large search was organized, but turned up nothing. Carrie was 11 years old at the time his brother disappeared. I remember going out one night after Steve disappeared and wishing on a star that my brother would come back home, Carrie reportedly told Mike Eccles, author of the book, I Know My First Name is Stephen. And I did that almost every clear night from then on until Steve finally came back home. I never did tell anybody about it, but I remember wishing on a star that my little brother would come back home. For years, Parnell traveled around California with Stephen. Stephen Stainer had a new father figure, and it was Kenneth Parnell, who by day was his father and by night was his rapist. Stephen was told his new name was Dennis Parnell, and he was enrolled in school. Against all odds, he flourished there. He had a great personality, said Lori Duke, who dated Stephen in high school, but knew him as Dennis. He was spunky. You could see that he wanted to play and be with kids and be normal. While Stephen was a freshman at Mendocino High School, some 300 miles to the south, his older brother, Carrie, was an upperclassman at Merced High School. Carrie always wore a hat because he suffered from a condition which caused him to compulsively pull his hair out. He also exhibited some behaviors that made others uncomfortable, including, as he later admitted, exposing himself to his sister's friend. It seemed as though he had a compulsion with trying to get close to women or be sexual with them, but he was unable to develop any sort of interpersonal relationships with any women. By the time Stephen was 14, he had been abused and manipulated by Parnell for seven years, and Parnell realized that Stephen was growing up and that he was no longer going to be controlled by Parnell and he would need to find someone else that he could sexually abuse. In February 1980, Parnell decided to kidnap a new victim. He paid a local kid to ride with him to the town of Ukiah, California, and he told him to go and find him a boy. Five-year-old Timothy White was walking home from school, and they quickly snatched him. For two weeks, Stephen watched Timothy suffer the separation from his family and the abuse. Then he took action. On March 1, 1980, Stephen waited until Parnell was at work and then fled the house with Timothy. The two hitchhiked to Ukiah, California. It was dark when they arrived and Timothy couldn't remember where he lived, so they went to the police station. Stephen told the police what had happened to him and to Timothy, and he was also able to tell them his real name was Stephen, not Dennis. 
Stephen was a national hero. On Good Morning America in March 1980, Stephen shared with host David Hartman that it felt great to be home. He told Hartman that his parents didn't change that much, but his brother and sisters, they changed a lot. I never recognized them after that. At a press conference outside the Stainer house, everyone was smiling except for Carrie, standing there in his baseball cap. Carrie wasn't smiling at all. The brothers, four years apart in age, shared a room, but didn't get along. Stephen didn't understand the rules that he was now expected to live by. He also struggled in high school, where he was bullied for the abuse that he had endured. Parnell was convicted on kidnapping and false imprisonment charges. He was sentenced to seven years in prison, but only served five, less time than he had held Stephen captive. Ken Parnell went back to what he had been doing for years. He was charged with attempting to purchase a child and attempted child molestation in 2004. And for that, he was sentenced to 25 years to life. He died in jail in 2008 at the age of 76, which is 76 years too long in my personal opinion. Stephen Stainer, meanwhile, was known to take refuge in nearby Yosemite, where he'd drive up and get lost in nature. He walked naked and smoked pot so he could find the peace that he so desperately needed. Stephen's fame was short-lived. He grew up, got married, and had two kids. Tragically, Stephen Stainer was killed in a 1989 motorcycle wreck at the age of only 24. Shortly after Stephen's death, an uncle with whom Carrie Stainer was very close was shot and killed in a home they shared together. By this point, Carrie Stainer had a couple of nervous breakdowns. He stated that he felt like jumping in a truck, driving it through the shop and killing the boss and killing everybody in the office and then torching the place, his friend Mark Marchese said in 1999. That's when I told him, you need to go to a doctor, Carrie. But instead of seeking mental health treatment, he moved to Yosemite. In 1997, Stainer got the job as the handyman at the Cedar Lodge, seven miles from the gate of the National Park, where he worked for two years before committing the murders. It's difficult for me to picture what Carrie has done and knowing Steve because their personalities were so completely opposite, Stephen's former girlfriend said. The only time Steve would kill anything, like a fish, is because we were going to eat it, you know what I mean? I wouldn't think that he would think of himself as one, but he is a hero. Carrie Stainer later said of his brother, quote, We never really got along that well after he came back from his abduction. All of a sudden, Steve was getting all these gifts, getting all this clothing, getting all this attention. I guess I was jealous. I'm sure I was. I was the oldest in all that. Then all of a sudden, it's gone. I got put on the back burner, you might say. Timothy White, the kidnapped victim saved by Steven Stainer, 
was only 35 years old when he died. Stephen and Timothy's dramatic story was told in the 1989 television movie, I Know My First Name is Stephen. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Darkest Nightmare. If you enjoy hearing 100% real stories of true terror, I'd love for you to subscribe to the show and never miss a new episode. Currently, I'm releasing one new show per week, and you can listen on whichever podcast provider is your favorite. Also, don't forget to check out the website at www.darkestnightmare.com. There you'll find photographs and videos which accompany each episode, and those help to show the real people and locations which our stories are about. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll come back and join me on the next episode as we explore the things which haunt us and make us look under our beds before we go to sleep, the things which can become our darkest nightmare. This podcast is researched and written by Zane Rankin and hosted by yours truly, Grandpappy. I'd like to offer a special thank you to Strange Outdoors for content used during this podcast. The audio you've just heard may contain copyrighted material. Such material is made available for educational purposes only. This constitutes fair use of any such copyrighted material as provided for in Title 17 U.S.C. Section 106A-117 of the U.S. Copyright Law.